Hi, welcome to the Governance Podcast at the Centre for the Study of Governance and Society at King's College London. My name is Dr. Homer Ektedar and I'm a reader in politics here at King's College. Uh, we're very pleased to welcome today uh, Dr. Woya Charnesh to the podcast. Woya um, is an assistant professor of politics, uh, political science at MIT. Her research focuses on historical political economy, legacies of violence, nation and state building and ethnic politics. Her current book project examines the long-run effects of forced migration in the aftermath of the Second World War in Eastern Europe, synthesizing several decades of micro-level data collected during a period of fieldwork in Poland. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Um, so, should we start? I mean, this is a this is a really interesting but very complex area of study. So, shall we start by just talking about how you got interested in this in these themes? Uh, sure. So, I am originally from Belarus, uh, Western Belarus, the town of Grodno, uh, and uh, Grodno was a part of many states without changing its location. Uh, it started in the Russian Empire, then it was a part of independent Poland, uh, and uh, after World War II, it uh, became Belarus. Mm-hmm. Uh, interestingly, uh, the population of Grodno, uh, according to the pre-war uh, Polish census, comprised 40% of um, Jewish residents and 42% of Polish residents. Now, today it is, uh, you know, very nearly 100% Belarusian natives. I see. So coming from a place like that, that experienced such a large change in its ethnic landscape, uh, has uh, made me very interested in... uh, population movements in relations between different ethnic groups and in the legacies of World War II, which essentially made my town what it is uh, like today. That's, that is really interesting. And, you know, uh, one of the things that is somewhat less studied is certainly the impact that World War II had in this particular way. People associate, you know, other kinds of massive transformations. Uh, but Eastern Europe was in particular transformed in a very profound manner. I saw from one of your papers that you basically collected information at the at the commun- municipality, municipality level. level. Yes. Uh, how easy was that? <laughs> And what does that data, what is that, what is contained in that data? What does it comprise right. of? So, so for my book project, I've been studying uh, the legacies of uh, shifts in European borders uh, after World War II, which precipitated population transfers on a, on a mass scale. Right. Um, much of uh, the border changes and population transfers occurred between Poland and Germany. Uh, the mm-hmm. territory of Poland uh, was uh, shifted westward. Uh, as Winston Churchill said, like a company of soldiers, uh, two steps to the left, close ranks. And so uh, Poland acquired um, uh, a big part of German territory from which the German population was expelled or fled. And this territory was repopulated essentially from scratch by Polish migrants from uh, a number of destinations, including the territories Poland lost to uh, the Soviet Union in the east, as well as central Poland, as well as a number of uh, Western and Southern European countries that Mm. before the war had large Polish diasporas. Mm. And so um, I spent uh, a year in Poland collecting archival data on the origin of the population in this 
territory that changed hands from Germany to Poland uh, at the municipality level. Uh, it was... Um, not easy uh, because this uh, data ha has not been digitized before, oh, right. but it also came from a census um, by uh, the government done in uh, 1948, mm -hmm. uh, which meant that uh, you know it already existed at the municipal level. Um, I also traveled to the region, uh, visiting some of these places that were completely transformed, transformed by migration. Uh, and I also draw on data collected by uh, the Polish Museum of Opolia at the village level to get some of the even more micro information right. about the origins of people who live in uh, this formerly German territory. So you mentioned uh, Polish diaspora coming in from the USSR. Um, I was curious, is that uh, when you say Polish diaspora, do they speak Polish mm -hmm. language? Because one of the things that you talk about uh, in terms of the composition of some of the more heterogeneous uh, municipalities mm -hmm. later on is the linguistic diversity as well. But when you say Polish diaspora, you're actually you're actually talking about people who speak Polish language. Right. right. So um, so they speak Polish. They probably speak Polish, uh, a specific with dialect, accent, right. Polish with an accent. So interesting thing about Poland is uh, for uh, for a long period of time before. Uh, world, before the end of World War One, Poland was partitioned by three empires, uh, mm -hmm. Russian, Prussian, and Austrian Empire. And so mm -hmm. Poles living in these different imperial partitions had very different culture. Uh, they uh, did not necessarily cross the imperial borders very often, and they developed their own dialects, right. which is still actually visible on the map of Poland today. And then, of course, Pol Poland has sent large waves of migrants uh, to a number of uh, Western and Eastern European countries for example, there were Polish miners in France mm. who lived there for generations. So they did identify as Polish, but they uh, had spent several generations abroad and um, did not necessarily speak the same type of Polish as right. other population. So, so coming to the book project then, um, I'm really curious about the overall argument that you're looking to build there. Uh, what exactly is, uh, is the overall argument and how does this kind of this, this micro data play into that? Um, yes. So um, the overall argument is that migration uh, and cultural diversity that results from mass migration affects the long-run trajectory of social and economic development. Mm -hmm. So, in particular, communities settled by diverse migrants or communities where migrants and natives mm -hmm. come from different cultures experience a greater erosion of social cohesion right. uh, initially. Right. So, so that's the kind of thing we know from, say, Button's yes, work. Exactly. So that's mm -hmm. the kind of uh, part of my argument that is uh, building on existing literature. Right. What my contribution is, is that I also uh, suggest that by eroding this informal solidarity, reducing kind of informal social capital in the short run, mm -hmm. um, cultural diversity can also increase the demand for alternative forms of enforcement, third-party right. enforcement, such as that provided by the state mm -hmm. or other formal organizations. So in doing so, diversity can contribute to the buildup of state capacity over time. Right. Um, and as we know from <clears throat> another la large literature in political economy, state capacity is very important for enforcing arm's length transactions and can facilitate development. Right. 
of course, this is all conditional on the nature and quality of state institutions. Absolutely, yes. Uh, so the argument uh, builds on existing literature, but combines it in a novel way mm. and offers what is a counterintuitive uh, implication that mm. actually... Um, Precisely by having this negative effects on social cohesion in the short run, migration and diversity can uh, strengthen states and uh, advance economic development in the long run. So we have a picture of these different municipalities, some more heterogeneous and some more homogeneous. Um, and uh, as I understand it, your argument is that in the short term, or at least initially, the more heterogeneous uh, communities will have a deficit of um, social capital. Um, certainly, there'll be less um, solidarity. Right. And because of that, they are more likely to turn towards the third party for enforcement right. of norms. Yeah. In this case, this is the state. But at the same time, you then want to go on to say the next level to this is that the state actually builds capacity that at a later stage can allow for more development, economic yes. development. Yes, exactly. So there are two parts of the argument. Right. The one is uh, merely how diversity increases or decreases reliance on informal informal ways of enforcing cooperation right. or ways of providing public goods, right? So one way is through informal norms and networks, which is which are much more effective in homogeneous communities. Mm -hmm. Homogeneous communities are well-suited for self-help collective action. They can provide uh, bottom-up public goods uh, voluntarily. Right. Um, Heterogeneous communities are not so well equipped, but this means that they might have a demand for external provision. And as right. we know from uh, existing research, the state often functions as an effective third party for curbing uh, free riding in mm -hmm. collective action dilemmas. Uh, so uh, basically what that means is that over time, again, not immediately, uh, diversity can uh, shore up the accumulation of state capacity. Right. And the evidence I have on that uh, from Poland is that communities uh, that, uh, so most of the communities I study were completely repopulated from scratch, right. but the ones that had migrants uh, from uh, different regions, as opposed to from the same region or even from the same village, hmm. um, uh, were so more heterogeneous resettled communities were uh, worse off initially at cooperating with each other, at uh, protecting their village, uh, at creating volunteer fire brigades. Um, but then later on, we see kind of that these communities also have uh, higher municipal taxes right. uh, and uh, are providing are relying on the state for the provision of certain public goods right. through the tax mechanism. <clears throat> so there's the first part of the argument. And the second part of the argument is what implications does this different mode of public goods provision mm -hmm. has for economic outcomes? Mm -hmm. And that, I argue, really depends on the nature of the state. Right. So when states are predatory, uh, greater state capacity is not necessarily good for development. Yes. <laughs> and uh, private right. economic activity is more intense when, you know, uh, and uh, when there are more informal mechanisms that right. allow to evade predatory state, um, as was often the case in the Soviet Union with the large informal economy, shadow mm. economy. Uh, but when states are uh, protecting property rights and also capable of doing so, um, you know, mm. so strong states um, that are pro-market and protect mm -hmm. uh, private property rights 
greater state capacity can actually advance development, facilitate uh, arms length economic transactions, facilitate economic specialization, also social mobility because um, and social mobility and geographic mobility because right. social capital is very very location relationship specific right. versus, versus other forms of enforcement. State enforcement is more geographically broad right, right. operating. Uh-huh. So what does this mean then in terms of the development of the nation or a national spirit? So because we have these somewhat different communities now, some that are more closely bound to each other and others that are not, how do you, how does that feed into, say, in the specific example that you're working with, how does that feed into Polish national identity and the making of the Polish nation? Right. So um, overall, this uprooting of populations and mixing of populations mm-hmm. has actually contributed to the creation of a more cohesive national identity. Okay. So that is something that is very hard to demonstrate at the subnational level because mm. of lack of you know survey data. But the region that was that experienced complete population uh, transformation and uprooting actually was. Um, uh, voting, let's say, very strongly pro-EU and I has see. a certain culture of its, of its own. Hmm. Uh, other interesting evidence comes from uh, communities that had a larger indigenous population uh, and experienced little resettlement, but are still located in the same region, transferred from Germany to Poland. And so those communities actually, uh, at the end of uh, the 1880s, early 19. Sorry, the turn of the 1980s to 1990s actually experienced the resurgence of their own new Silesian identity. Uh, So in one of the Polish censuses, they declared uh, that they speak their own Silesian language. Some of them Hmm. applied for German passports, uh, which is certainly due to economic incentives of uh, ability of working in Germany before the uh, access to the uh, the EU, um, but also... Uh, because they probably retain some of their own uh, more specific group identity and were not. But what you're saying now seems to contradict what you just said earlier, Mm -hmm. because it seems like there is actually a big regional difference then in terms of these populations, and Polish national identity is somewhat Mm -hmm. conflicted because of this division. Right. So it's conflicted... at the national level, right. but when you go down to the subnational level, the more mixing, which would mean there's not a large majority see, coming from the okay. same region living right. cohesively in one place, then means more support for Polish national identity. But I should say that, uh, you know, so again, there's very, very little uh, subnational data on the national identity right. at this micro level that allows to um, test this argument more uh systematically right it's easier with some of the economic and tax indicators because they are available at the municipal and sometimes at an even smaller level and and then uh thinking about so you do make a distinction you you do say that depending upon the kind of state you know this this level of dependence upon the state may or may not lead to economic development do you think through or do you work through different kinds of state responses to uh, to communities demanding or or working closely with the state? Do you would you work through different types of states, for instance, in this? Book? Um, right. So in the book, I'm uh, planning to draw evidence on Poland, of course, which right. had three different types of institutions. The first okay. period was the Wild West. The German institutions are uh, collapsing uh, and abolished. Mm. The Polish institutions never existed in this region until. 
after World War II, so they were being established from scratch. Um, then there's a period, you know, of um, state socialism. Now it's actually a very diverse period that is hard to describe by just one label. It starts mm. with Stalinism, then there's greater liberalization, um, uh, eventually yes. more private economic activities allowed. So it's you know various differences, but overall throughout this period, the state was uh, not. Um, good at protecting private property rights, was restricting entrepreneurship, and was, uh, in, some have argued, a weak and corrupt state. Hmm. Right? And then there's transition to a market economy, which in Poland actually uh, led to the increase in state capacity. So looking at the administrative personnel, it increased rapidly after the mm-hmm. transition as opposed to dropped, which happened in some other post-communist countries. Uh, so that's a kind of market economy, also, of course, democratization, um, and the third type of state. Now, of course, in this case, uh, because we have commu- communities that are different in levels of cultural diversity, experiencing all of these three states uh, right. at different times, yes. it's uh, pretty hard to conclusively pinpoint mm-hmm. the effect of these institutions. Um, so I'm hoping to do more on that by bringing comparisons of other uh, European states that experienced uh, forced migration right. after the war. So most importantly, Germany was the country uh, also dramatically transformed right. through the arrival of forced migrants. Um so German expellees, some over 8 million of German, German expellees arrived to Western Germany and were distributed to uh, predominantly rural homogeneous areas where mm. the housing after the war was not destroyed. And so it's, in, it's interesting to see how their arrival has right. affected local communities. And so, uh, so this is a very preliminary, but uh, there is some evidence that um, the need to support these forced migrants has actually contributed to an increase in local taxes. Mm-hmm. Um, also, we know that the refugees were placing higher demands on the state. They lacked local networks. They often went to courts to get uh, the housing that was granted to them or just justified to them by the law right. uh, because the locals were not necessarily willing to share. Right. right? So uh, the German uh, law on the redistribution of uh, war burdens, Lastenausgleichgesetz, mm. uh, was adopted in part to uh, address this refugee problem. And certainly there was also diversity uh, mm. as a result of this population uh, uh, transfer. Um, of course, many think about post-World War II population transfers as creating ethnically homogeneous states, right. uh, which is not incorrect. But then again, at the subnational level, this brought um, tremendous diversification of local life. So in Germany, mm. uh, some migrants um, historically lived in Eastern European states for many generations, and then they arrived in this German Reich that, you know, mm. they, they arrived in Western Germany that... Um, was not familiar to them. Some of them actually did come from German territory, uh, transferred to Poland, uh, that was part of Germany historically for one period of time. So they probably shared norms and uh, language, but they also often differed in their denomination from the population uh, in place. So Catholic mm. migrants arrived to Protestant communities and vice right. versa. So that also brought um, no new tensions right. and affected uh relations with the natives. So I would, you know, I would predict that that uh, also had ramifications for yes. uh, institutional development, for the increased role in the state in providing for this population and uh, mediating between different groups of migrants mm. and migrants and natives. Uh, and, uh, you know, perhaps also had important economic effects by modernizing the countryside, diversifying local economies. Right. Um, you know, uh, all of this is not to say that Expellees, 
refugees or forced migrants in whatever is case good, we're dealing mm-hmm. is, a, is a good phenomenon and also right. it's probably carried very uh, high economic and psychological costs for the population mm-hmm. that was displaced. Yeah, I guess, I mean, the larger implication that I drew from what you're saying is more that um, that heterogeneous communities, contrary to say what Mm-hmm. but may have us believe that there is a, a it's a more com- complex relationship between uh, communities, diversity, and economic development in particular, than this kind of singular notion that, you know, the more homogenous a community is, the more the social capital there might be, and, right. and in some ways, the more, you know, prosperity, etc., we may, uh, we may see there. So, so I guess what, one of the larger implications of your research is just this uh, slightly more complex and more complicated understanding of the of uh, the role of heterogeneous communities in supporting economic development. And this, I guess, another implication, again, thinking about the American context right now, there's a lot of debate about whether migrants bring economic development or economic prosperity, whether they contribute, are they an economic burden or are they an economic advantage? And I'm assuming, you know, some of the implications of your research will feed into that kind of yes, a conversation. Yes, exactly. So I think, you know, our biggest implication is that um, immigration and cultural heterogeneity can actually be a good thing, especially mm-hmm. in a somewhat more long term. Right. Right. Uh, which means it's also important when we try to understand the consequences of um, migration and diversity to look at outcomes at different periods of time. Right. Uh, which can, you know, will turn out to be a much more complex relationship that may be than perhaps initially assumed. Uh, it also suggests something about the importance of the role of the state in actually enabling migrants or mm. refugees to contribute to the whole society, uh, you know, addressing some of their welfare needs, also mediating between them and the native population. Uh, and Because certainly history shows, and we see today, uh, that the relationship between you know, the, the natives and the migrants is often contentious. The native population is not happy about large numbers of migrants and refugees, right. uh, as was always the case, even when there were perhaps arguably smaller cultural differences hmm. uh, in states like Germany and German expellees joining their compatriots yes. in Western Germany. So this is inevitable, but, um, you know, states can really play an important role in facilitating assimilation, uh, providing for these communities, and enabling refugees or migrants to really contribute to the local economies. Yes, no, it's interesting you mentioned the relatively small differences because, uh, you know, the context that I work on in in terms of um, regional focus is South Asia. And one of the things that is interesting about South Asia is that there is just immense diversity that people contend with on a daily basis, right? So uh, just in terms of religious, ethnic, linguistic diversity, there's especially the the, the cities, but also uh, most regions just c- contend with a lot more religious diversity on a daily basis, a lot more linguistic diversity on a, on a daily basis, and ethnic diversity as well. So I was curious, I mean, this is kind of slightly out of scope (laughs) in terms of your, you know, directly uh, what you work on. But I was just curious about uh, the levels of homogenization that are acceptable in in popular imagination, right? So, or the levels of diversity that are acceptable Mm -hmm. uh, in popular imagination, because it seems to me that within the European context, there's greater acceptance of 
homogeneity. Mm-hmm. This homogeneous populations are seen as the norm mm-hmm. or or as a valuable good, mm-hmm. um, whereas m- most other parts of the world actually contend with much more diversity mm-hmm. on an everyday basis. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's a difficult <laughs> question, right? So, so one one thing as I would say is certainly the extent of cultural difference matters. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it matters for. Uh, relationships between individuals it matters right. for individuals relationship with the state which often presents the dominant represents the right. dominant ethnic group and can uh, interact and regulate and often even be uh, discriminating in favor of this majority group um, I do think that um, my research is applicable to other types mm-hmm. of diversity ethnic and religious one important thing that makes things work is migration right mm-hmm. or forced migration in right. some cases um, some voluntary migration as well which um, uproots individuals from their communities where mm-hmm. they already have a cohesive environment and they make up a homogeneous internally community even if they live next door to another homogeneous mm-hmm. yet different community um, so some kind of uprooting and mixing mm-hmm. uh, is necessary for the theory to work, right? So we right. already see historical developments where, you know, some have argued that ethnicity itself developed to facilitate collective action and public mm-hmm. goods provision, right. right? So this happened before states developed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, now that this is in place, it probably affects just how much need there is for this kind of external party Third-party mediation mediation in this case, right? So I think maybe for me it's less about uh, actual cultural difference and more about how groups are distributed Mm -hmm. um, and whether there is some kind of mixing between them, which oftentimes is the result of migration and specific patterns of resettlement. Because as we know, people segregate, self-segregate, are segregated by others, and uh, migrants often arrive into ethnic enclaves. And Mm -hmm. so when we see that... Uh, then migration and diversity will have different implications for state development and economic um, outcomes as well. So uh, going back to Poland, one of the questions I had in mind was also the, the whether you can see any patterns in terms of support for a more kind of homogenous Polish identity mm-hmm. uh, and uh, on the one side and uh, integration with the EU on right. the other side. And how does that map onto the communities that you have looked at? Right. So, um, so I started uh, the project uh, hoping that I will also see that more culturally diverse places mm-hmm. are more pro-EU. Right. And so on the Polish map, looking at the results from the 2003 referendum on EU accession, we actually see a very clear discontinuity at the border between the uh territory transfer from Germany after the war uh, mm-hmm. and the rest of Poland, including the territory that was historically a part of the Prussian partition, but became Poland a little earlier right. and did not experience this massive uprooting and mixing of population. However, when I uh, started analyzing this within the territory that was repopulated and looking at um, you know municipal, municipal level uh, diversity, okay. I did not find very strong results. Hmm. Uh, so puzzlingly, the are no strong differences in uh, preferences. I, I, I found see. somewhat more diverse, uh, you know, party preferences. Like the more parties 
you know, if we, if we were to uh, treat votes for each party uh, as its own preference, there's more diverse preferences and more diverse communities. Right. But there's no clear relationship between support for a specific political party, pro-EU, pro-Polish identity, more religious or conservative. Right. Um, and the amount of diversity historically in this municipality within the resettled region. Okay. So, so what, what I hear you puzzling. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So what I hear you yeah. saying is this is just one variable and there are other important variables yeah. that seem to make a big difference in yes. in people's attitudes towards the EU including right. their party affiliations etc. Right, exactly. But it right. seems like it seems like just forced migration itself and perhaps mm-hmm. living in a more economically developed region closer literally to the EU to Germany actually ah, has these positive implications. Okay. Uh, but diversity in migrants' origins itself does not. Okay. Hmm. Uh, and so with party preferences, you know, there are many differences, many, many reasons for this. One, perhaps strategic voting. When voting right. is at the district level aggregated, that makes no sense to, you know, support different parties in different municipalities. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's just a very kind of uh, one possible explanation. Right. right. Um, but it's also, you know, it's it's also true that uh, many of these areas have been uh, homogenized and assimilated over time. Mm. You know, so perhaps uh, these differences in political preferences have simply weakened, but right. uh, investments in state capacity. Uh, turned out to be more persistent. Right. And actually, with that, I wanted to return to the question of state socialism. And, and um, I thought you said something very interesting about, you know, this this idea that we say state socialism and we use it as a, a, a black box almost mm-hmm. and a lot of things are put into it. Um, and you wanted us to be alive to a variation in what state socialism might actually entail. So again, with, with this particular example, how would you break down mm-hmm. state socialism? What are the different states? stages or what are the different versions right so the kind of the first uh, earliest years of state socialism in poland or well actually i call them the stalinist years right so in poland uh, stalinism lasted from approximately 1948 though that date is you know can can be contested mm. until 1956 which was right. a few years after the death of stalin so during this time uh you know there was uh very kind of strong state control over all aspects of the economy, mass industrialization, all type of uh, private economic activity was uh, banned, uh, mm-hmm. and there was uh, an attempt to collectivize agriculture, mm. uh, which was actually especially successful in this uh, resettled western part of Poland for a number of reasons, um, including probably the fact that the population was weak and uprooted. Uh, so during this period, uh, uh, Shadow economy certainly existed, mm. uh, but uh, it was much more punishable I see. and much more problematic. And the right. state was just more kind of a monolithic, trying to suppress all expressions of political activity. Mm-hmm. Now, um, data from this period also very hard to get, especially mm. at the fine-grained level. So that's so did they not collect? Um, it's well, I think somewhat was collected. Somewhat is hard to find in the archive, and somewhat is at the larger administrative level. Right. Um, and so uh, it's collected, but just stored at a higher administrative right, right, level. Right. I see. So there are some indicators uh, from the 1950 census on, let's say, share of population in industrial occupations and agriculture. Mm-hmm. So there's that information. That census also asks again about the origins of population uh, at the at the county level, which is 
use a I larger see. level of aggregation than what I use. Right. So there is some data, but it's just like a 1950, which is a little bit too early to understand mm. the full effects of Stalinism. So in the book project, I look at the changes more at the regional level. So I show, let's say, that uh, collective agriculture was much more widespread in mm-hmm. the formerly German territories. I show that uh, there was a kind of greater uh, penetration of state economy, socialized economy in this region. And again, the reasons for this are manifold. One is that uh, basically all of German property was taken over by the state without too much struggle. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were no uh, original owners left. Mm. Um, and also there were large German estates, uh, which uh, immediately became state farms. Mm-hmm. State tr- also tried to incentivize uh, cooperatives uh, and kind of uh, change the population's ways. And again, mm-hmm. it was easy in the areas that were forcibly uh, repopulated. Right. Um, then uh, the next period... Uh, so... In 1956, uh, there were protests uh, mm-hmm. across Poland, starting in Poznan, and uh, there was uh, a brief period of uh, liberalization. Right. Um, and so uh, many state farms, people started leaving state farms, many mm. cooperatives that were initially created uh, fell apart. Um, okay. There was some uh, expression of political activity that was more free. There were, you know, literally protest activity going on mm-hmm. uh, across the area. Um so uh, that started a period of also uh, different attitude toward private um, economic activity. I see. Which was liberalized further and further through the 70s and especially in the 80s. Okay. So in Poland, unlike in uh, many countries in the Soviet Union, mm-hmm. uh, it was possible to have your own private small business. Right. Oftentimes this was in so-called handicrafts, which were, you know, small shoemaking mm-hmm. business, shoe repairing business, things like that. Uh, so there's certainly important limitations on how many of those could exist in a given locality, probably problems with licensing. Uh, but this was possible. People right. were also growing uh, a lot of their food. They could sell it formally and informally. So uh, basically there was a period of economic and political liberalization that uh, culminated, of course, at the end of the 80s with, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the 1888 law that allowed all kinds of private economic activity. Uh, but I think the popular misconception about uh, state socialism in Poland is that until the transition to the market and democracy, no private economic activity legally was possible. And that is right. not true. Right. It was definitely uh, possible, possible and actually happened. And actually happened quite right. a bit. It's just that... And, and throughout the 80s, the number of private enterprises kept increasing. It's just that they were still very kind of suffering from a lot of problems right. <laughs> with state enforcement and shadow economy was still uh, prospering right. and the state share of economic activity was still very high. Okay. Thank you. That is, uh, that's all very interesting. And I'm very, very much looking forward to reading your book when, uh, <laughs> when it comes out. Um, thank you very much for, uh, for sharing your thoughts and, and, and discussing these ideas with us. Um, Thanks for the thought-provoking questions. <laughs> I have a lot to think about now. Well, I mean, this looks like a fantastic project. So um, uh, with that, I think we'll end. Uh, to our listeners, thank you for joining us on this episode of the Governance Pro- Podcast with Volia here. Volia, thank you very much for, for the conversation. And to learn more about our upcoming podcasts and events at the Center, uh, please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. In the meantime, we look forward to seeing you again soon on the Governance Podcast. Thank you. Thank you.